Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. It's a June afternoon in our home, and I have a guest with me um, by the name of Roxanne Kennedy. Welcome to the podcast, Roxanne. Thank you, Richard. I'm happy to be here. Roxanne lives in St. George, is in town. We've been planning on this podcast for a couple months. Roxanne, who just offered a wonderful prayer before we started to record, is an active LDS mother of four children. And she's going to talk about what it's like to have a spouse um, addicted to pornography. And that's kind of a complicated subject. And Roxanne has written a book. We'll reference it in the podcast called Cutting Ties. And uh, the name of the book is Healing from Betrayal Trauma as the Spouse of an Addict. And I have a copy of this book. I've read the book, and I was deeply touched by Roxanne's courage to write about this very difficult subject. And just in visiting with Roxanne, she is strong and courageous and is willing to talk about this, which is helping so many people, both spouses and people that have this challenge in their life. Um, It's something we don't talk about very much, and I admire Roxanne willing to talk about it. She has four kids. I may have already mentioned that. One that's married, one that's on a mission in North Carolina, a daughter. And um, you're not a grandma yet, are you? Not yet, but hopefully not too long. And um, that's great. Anything, is is that okay what I said as an introduction, Roxanne? Yeah, that sounds great. So um, you, um, I may have mentioned this, your marriage is now over. I think it's been over for about four years. Yep, it's gone on four years. And you were together for about 20 years, and you were aware of this challenge. I don't know what the word to call it, a challenge, an addiction, <laughs> something that needs to be resolved six months into your marriage. So you, this wasn't something that just came to light 10 or 15 years after marriage. This is something you knew about. Yeah, I, I did. So take us to the beginning. Just introduce yourself a little bit to us, where you grew up and okay. where you went to college and kind of that kind of stuff. Okay. All right. I grew up in Pleasanton, which is the Bay Area of California. You know where that is. You yeah. do. Okay. So I lived there my whole life as far as before college, always in the same house. So never moved at all. So my first experience out was going to Rick's College. And so that's where I went. Did uh, you know Dana and John Wright that lived in Pleasanton about 20 years um, ago for a couple of years? That's a sm- No, because I've been gone. You've been gone. Yes, I've been gone now for 30 okay. years. So they I can't. Don't. Okay. So those are good friends of yours. Yeah, I just happened to live there. So oh, okay. yeah. keep telling your okay. story. All right. So uh, I went to school. And then a few years later, I met my husband. And we ended up getting married. And headed to BYU. He finished school there. And I was a cosmetologist at that point, had gone to hair school. And so I opened a couple hair salons and And where are you living at this point? This is in Provo. So you're in Provo, opening hair salons. That's cool. Yeah, right. And uh, at that point, uh, I thought we were living like the high life. We were just so happy. We'd been married for about six months and talked about how We loved each other more than most people do. And we weren't struggling like anybody else was in that first year of marriage until I came home from work one day and we had one of those old TVs with the knobs. And Uh uh, when I turned it on, it was stuck between stations on pornography. Wow. And I felt so shocked and so uh, really a lot of trauma. I didn't know that's what it was at the time, but I was completely blindsided with that. I had no idea he had struggled. Uh, I didn't, um, I mean, I had seen it once before when I was like 12, but it wasn't something that was a part of my life. So, or my dad's. And so I wasn't, it wasn't something that I was even looking for. And so when I found that out, 
uh, we did go to our church leader at the time, and he was a struggling addict, and he uh, was trying to live in recovery. So he shared with us some things that helped him stay sober and manage it. But at the time, there wasn't really programs that I knew of anyway for addiction or that it was even called an addiction. Pornography wasn't necessarily called that back then, at least that I was aware of at that age. Uh, So we kind of came home from that thinking, all right, we're just going to, you know, delve into church answers and read more scriptures and say more prayers and all of that, all of that. But what happened for me is it, it was so shocking to me that all of a sudden I felt um, so angry. I felt stressed. I couldn't stay at work at night because I was worried about what he was doing. And I, I just, I just lost trust all of a sudden. And at that point, my life started to feel hard and it started to feel so stressful and anxiety. And I I hadn't ever experienced anxiety before. Um, but now all of a sudden I have this swirl of chaos in my insides that felt like my body inside was shaking head to toe. And I didn't know what that was. And I didn't know that until 17 years later. And that's when I realized that it was anxiety from somebody else telling me that, but I didn't know. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the kind of the beginning. beginning. Mm -hmm. And so many thoughts. I think our listeners know that my experience as a singles ward bishop working with single people, your journey is going to be a little more um, talking about this as a spouse of a married person. But I think the podcast, as Roxanne and I started, we thought of the groups we hope this will help. And so we hope if you're working on pornography addiction um, or challenge, whatever label you want to take, that you will hear principles here that will give you hope that you can overcome this and perhaps the motivation to overcome this because this story is about, you know, a marriage ending because of this, even with great efforts on your parts to try to make this work. And so I think it's also helpful for a spouse that has another spouse with this challenge. And I think it might be helpful for younger people that don't have this challenge to sort of motivate them not to. Right. And I think it's helpful for local leaders. I I remember the very first interview as I was set apart for a bishop was a young man that came in and wanted to talk about pornography. It just started. It was interview one. Yeah. They were just lined up in the hall, and I didn't have a lot of training. I hadn't really gone to any classes. I mean, I certainly knew about this issue. So with that backdrop, let's... Um, get back to your story. Did you kind of think this would end then after this first sort of exposure to your husband's challenge? Well, I hoped it would. But what happened was every couple of years, something new would show up that I would find. And so then it just kept that distrust always in the back of my mind. And really from that first day, I never gained trust back form ever again. It was always like that. And so it wasn't until 2012 in February that I found a large enough amount of stuff that I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I heard the spirit tell me, you know what this is. This is a real problem. This isn't just something that he's just choosing to do out of rebellion or, or whatever, that this really is an issue and the time is now. Wow. And I think I probably could have, uh, noticed it earlier at times I would think, how did I not know? And how did I go through all these years, you know, without knowing, but, but I wasn't ready. I didn't have tools or knowledge. I had no background about addiction at all whatsoever. So I didn't even know what I was looking for. I was just trusting and he was my spouse and, and trying to just, uh, do what we do as as spouses, at least for me, I thought 
from all those years, I can fix this and I can be better and I can be cuter and nicer and sweeter. And I did all the things like he'd come home and I would greet him at the door and anything I could do. And it wasn't until I learned later that that addiction has nothing to do with me at all. doesn't matter what I'm doing. He's, that's still his agency and that's what he's, he's choosing. Yeah, that's pretty tenderhearted for me to think of um, kind of what we do to want to fix things is we look inward and say, this might be my fault or what can I do differently? Yeah, because if and, we do take it on, then we can fix it. And then if it is our fault, then we know we can change this and make it better. So when it's someone else's, we have that lack of control and we don't know what to do. And I didn't learn later until, until how, you know, how to do that and, and how to let go of that control. You said when you first found out when the knobs were stuck behind the, in the TV, and I can remember those TVs, that you, one of your emotions was anger. And mm -hmm. I don't have any clinical training, but I've learned that anger is kind of a secondary emotion to a primary feeling. Where do you think that anger came from? Well, it's fear. For sure, absolutely, because you are fearful of what is, what isn't, what's to come, what you know, what you don't know, what this means for your future, what does this look like, what am I supposed to do, am I supposed to leave, am I supposed to fight for him? I mean, it is so hard when you're, you're, you're sealed in the temple and you have this person that you chose. You're, you feel, for me anyway, I felt like I needed to fight to the death, and that's almost what I did. And it wasn't, I really did almost die just of just the pain and the brokenhearted feelings that I had, but I didn't. So I made you it didn't. through. Yeah. I, I love the way you just answered that pretty quickly. It was fear. Yeah. And then you explained why, and that certainly resonates with me. And fear then would generate secondary emotions because fear is a primary emotion. Yeah. And all those secondary emotions of anger make sense to me. And anxiety is you're talking about the wondering about the future and wondering what he's doing and the violation of trust that happens in a situation like this, that seems like anxiety to me is about the future. Stress is kind of about today right. and that sort of what sense. I'm thinking about today. And, and anxiety is sort of these unknown things in the future that can really cripple us. Oh, yeah, for sure. It, it blinds us sometimes to where we feel like we need to be stuck kind of in the mud or in quicksand because that future looks scary and we don't know what it looks like. So we'd rather stay in the quicksand where we know what it is, even though it's painful, then walk through that dark, that dark place to get to the other side. Walk us through the numbers. What is this male? Uh, is this a hundred percent male problem, challenge, addiction? No, no, absolutely not. It's a human problem and it's a Satan problem. So we are bombarded with images and, and all sorts of different types of pornography. And uh, I don't know the exact stats, but it's somewhere along the lines of 70, 80% of men struggle with pornography and 30% of women. And this includes younger, like young women and young men as well. This isn't just adult people because it starts when they're younger. It's, it's like smoking. You don't normally pick up smoking when you're 35. You pick it up when you're a teenager and then you have an addiction. It's the same idea. So 70% of men struggle with pornography. They do. Mm -hmm. Active LDS men, or is right. that population? Uh, that's, in, that's active LDS men. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why it's not, it's not about the person. It's about Satan, and it's, the problem. it's just a problem of today. So we need to fight the addiction, not the person. I like that, too. And so that's, that's a different thing than saying of all the people that have a challenge with pornography, 70% are men and 30% are women. 
you said something much different. You said 70% of all men, mm -hmm. LDS active men, have a challenge with pornography and 30% yeah. of all active LDS women. And I remember talking with my YSA stake president, other YSA bishops when I served, and I put the number pretty close to that. Yeah. Um, I haven't really thought about the married population or the younger population. I was just thinking of the single YSA population, but maybe there's no reason that would be different than the rest of the church population. And yeah, and I and it was the active men. It was, you know, really good people that had this challenge. I was, that was one of the things that was interesting for me is, as really faithful women and men came and talked about this, mm -hmm. I recognized I was dealing with some very, very faithful people that had really good spiritual gifts, but had this challenge that potentially could lead them down a road like you saw firsthand in your family that was destructive. Right. And because of that, the way we see it as it is a, a perverted thing where you imagine this person that's unkempt in their basement, you know, looking at pornography, that's how you imagine it. But it's our everyday family members that are living good lives and they're striving to, but they, they somehow saw it once and it, it just, they let that they just, I guess, looked again, right? And it just kept going. Uh, but if we keep that out in the open and make it so it's not a shameful thing, that it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Yes, bad things can happen. And absolutely, there's consequences to addiction because it uh, gets worse and worse all the time. But uh, it can still be helped and you can still find hope and healing and not all is lost and you don't have to take it to your grave and not tell anybody about it. If the shame is removed, we can talk about it openly. We can actually talk about it in our congregations. Like, hey, everybody, this is a problem. We want to work on it. We're doing this event for the youth. And, and if we talk about it openly, we'll remember that it's happening to the people that we love. If you could go back to your younger self that at six months into marriage when mm -hmm. you found this really difficult um situation with yeah. your husband and his pornography, what would you say to yourself? And it's kind of you talking to other spouses that are just finding this out for the first time. Right. I do get a lot of uh, emails and calls from people who are just now finding out. And I tell them that for one, they are not alone. There's thousands of beautiful survivors out there that have made it through that there are addicts that do choose recovery addiction's hard. So that stat is somewhere along the lines of maybe two out of 10, just like drug addiction, it's the same, will choose recovery. But there is hope for them for healing and there is hope for their marriage if they both choose in to doing the work that's necessary. But really that they're not alone because when I thought it was just me, my mind was like, you're the worst and you're this. And I'm talking to myself saying nobody you're else. you're the only one with this challenge. So it must be your fault. Right. There's no way anybody else is going through what I'm going through. I'm the only one. And so when you find those other people that you look in their eyes and you see that they know and the pain in their eyes is the same as what you feel, there's this connection that you can't describe. And then you know you're not alone. And you skip right over what's your favorite color? What do you like to eat? And you go into the depths and you share the real stuff. And all of a sudden you have this bond and this friendship with somebody who gets you. I love that. That's mm -hmm. full of hope. Yeah. And it's full of strength. Yep. And it's rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were with YSA bishops, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you had a chance to speak to YSA bishops, but I would have loved for you to come yeah. 
Yeah. I would love to do that. Um, we did have some people come speak about pornography, but mm-hmm. and we were just kind of eating it up, meaning we knew we needed more tools here. What would you say? So I'm going to just share some thoughts. I was a little uncomfortable letting the YSAs take on the addiction label because I was worried it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, your husband's addicted. And so right. was that a disservice because it caused them not to own up to the seriousness of the problem? Or was that helpful in the sense that some aren't addicted at some stage in their journey with pornography? For sure. I think everybody's different. Somebody at 15 can be a full-blown addict already because of the severity that either things that have happened to them or what they've seen or how often they're viewing other people uh, might be using, but it hasn't necessarily turned into a full-blown addiction. I think talking to the YSA people is really important because they're right at that beginning. And what I found in talking to um, some parents of YSA kids that either have a daughter that's dating someone with an addict or an addict child, their, their fears are... For the young men, their fears are, I have to keep this to myself because if I tell my girlfriend or fiance, they're not going to marry me. And and the lie that Satan tells us is that you're not worth anything more than this. This is who you are, which is not true. You're not your addiction. And they're also telling themselves that, or Satan tells them that they don't owe it to their girlfriend um, to let them know which is taking her agency away. So, so you want to know as a young man, you want to know that she's choosing you knowing all of your struggles and there will be somebody who will maybe not that person, but, but taking her agency is, is not going to give you a good start to your relationship and it might not end well like mine didn't. Right. And then girls, uh, their struggle is if they're not addiction, if they don't have addiction themselves, then their issue is, Everybody struggles with this. Every boy I've dated struggles with this. And so it's just how it is. And I'm going to have to marry somebody that does. And otherwise I'm not going to get married. So I'd rather marry somebody that does than not get married at all. And what I like to tell them is, is absolutely you can marry an addict, uh, but knowingly, knowingly marry him and know that that road will be hard but awesome too. And if you both choose into what it takes to uh, be sober and heal and be honest and vulnerable with each other, then their relationship will be amazing because some of the best people I know are recovering addicts. And it's because they're so open, because they're vulnerable, they're completely honest. And who doesn't want a completely honest spouse, right? And so that's that's for girls. Uh, that, And also that they don't have to save somebody. A lot of times as women... We have this need to want to save and fix. And if, if I just love them enough, then they're going to want to change. And we can't save anybody. The Savior does the saving. And it's really either he knows more or we do. And so it's really him. So that's that. And then obviously, um, I already talked about the young men, but they can be honest and they can get the help they need. And it won't go away just because they get married. That's the other a misconception is that because they get married and they are intimate with their spouse, that this problem will go away. But the problem is not actually about sex. Pornography addiction is about connection and uh, a disorder that way, filling voids in other ways, just like any other drug. So it's not actually about that. That just happens to be the drug of choice. 
This is the podcast of all the podcasts I've done. I think the one I wish I'd heard <laughs> a week before I was called as YSA Bishop. <laughs> I bet, yeah. Um, this is very, very helpful. And I'm thinking back on the journey to kind of get to a lot of the same places you were. I remember a YSA stake president in another stake talking about a general authority visit, and he said anybody that's dating someone with a pornography addiction should end that relationship. And the YSA stake president had many engagements end. And he was uncomfortable about that blanket advice. And I remember being aware of that. And then I remember eventually getting to the point where teaching the YSAs, and we talk about it really open in Elders Quorum and Release Society, you need to, you need to, if you have, are you looking at pornography, you need to disclose that. We used to call it, I used to tell them to do it in the, the sort of getting serious stage, pre-engagement stage, not maybe the first date. But when they're really sort of considering the relationship that in what you taught is being open and honest and completely transparent, and then some women would stay yep, and mm-hmm. some women would leave. And I always felt the when I told the sisters this, you should feel permission to do either. Yes. And just what you taught. And I, it took me a long time to get to that because I wanted kind of a cut and dry same answer for every situation. And I, I recognized that that probably wasn't helpful, that I needed to teach principles and let the YSA sometimes make their own decisions. But I really learned what you taught is that just becoming intimate in marriage doesn't solve this because pornography is often not about sex. It's about the very things you talked about. Right. Talk about any more advice you'd give to single people, to, to women who don't have this challenge that are dating somebody or to men that have this challenge that are... I mean, some of the men I met would not date. They felt like they sort of needed to fix themselves before they started to date. And I wanted them sometimes to say this may, a lot of men, you know, as they got in healthy relationships, this lifted from them because they were looking for a connection and looking for, you know, and the loneliness was often sort of at the root of this. And I don't don't think that's one size fits all. You just get in a relationship and this lifts. But for some, perhaps without a, with it not being an addiction yet, it did seem to lift. Any more just thoughts to our single people? Well, being a, I'm a dating person myself, even though I'm 47. And so uh, people ask me that. They say, do you now just never date anybody that has struggled with addiction? Do you just, all of that's off limits. And I say, oh, absolutely not. Uh, because like I said, some of the greatest people I know are recovering addicts. I'm looking for honesty and truth. I'm looking for, I have my own boundaries that I set. I, I want certain things and I won't, I won't, um, be with somebody with certain things. And so not about that, but they need to be open and honest and working on their addiction, uh, with counseling and programs and, and not just with going to church. They need actual, it's like going to a doctor for something. You actually need help with stuff that you don't know how to do. And so I, I don't think addicts are off limits to date either men or women. I just think that they need to be open and honest and be working on it and be listening for the tools that are coming their way. The, the higher the pride is that you have, then the less chance that you will find true recovery. So that's what can I you say that again, Roxanne, if I can, I don't know. Uh, um, the I don't, higher just, the pride, the higher the pride, the less chance of recovery. That's, that really resonates with me. Yeah. Well, we're doing our own will then. We're fighting against, as Heavenly Father places different uh, options or tools or ideas in front of us, he's constantly giving us miracles to 
choose into our healing or choose into growth. And when we stay stuck because we don't want to grow, then we miss out on what he's trying to show us. But he never stops giving them to us. But we sometimes say, oh, I don't want to do that one. That one feels hard. Or I've never been to a counselor before. I will never go to a counselor. And I had never gone to one either. But when I was introduced to one just um, about five, six, let's see, seven years ago, that was the greatest thing I've ever done. I love it so much. And now I'm a huge proponent of counseling for everybody. It's life-changing. Talk about the tools. So I love, I think I would have thought that, in fact, I had... (laughs) Another YSA stick present in my life, none of these were my own, said, I don't know of anybody reading the Book of Mormon that has a pornography problem. And I thought, I thought sometimes we simplify things. I mean, we yeah. want to, you know, and I love the Book of Mormon, the power of the Book of Mormon and going to church, like you said, but I recognize what you just said. This is an illness and you need to turn to people that have expertise in treating this illness. For sure. And just talk about some of the tools that are out there. So if I'm an addict or wondering if I'm an addict, where, where do I turn? I Yeah, you can turn to the church. And will the church send you to the tools you need, or you kind of need to find those on your own? Yeah, sometimes. I think that it's basically how familiar our church leaders are with the programs and if they believe in them themselves. And so, again, it's it's about being open and aware that we might know. We just probably don't know everything. And being willing to accept that and say, hey, you know, I don't know what to send you to, but I'm going to find out. Or I don't know how to help you, and I'm going to find out instead of just giving the blanket answers of Read the Book of Mormon. And of course, all of those answers are amazing. That keeps you connected with God. But it's we, are, we only know what we know. So our perspective is limited. Our view is limited. And so when you've struggled with an addiction, mostly from childhood is generally where it starts. You're talking about before your brain is even all the way formed as far as how that works, you know, and, and so you're talking about little kids that are now grown adults that have this issue and reading the scriptures isn't going to give them any insight, knowledge, or education that they need and you need education. And so that's why you have to go to the sources of education, which is counseling and 12 step groups and, uh, anything else alongside the church answers, of course, because that's how you stay with the spirit. And, you know, even the 12 step in the community is all about surrendering to God. Um, In our ward here in Salt Lake, when this subject comes up, I sense a lot of justified concern with parents of kids, you know, in the ages of 10 to 20 Mm -hmm. that are still at home pre-YSA age, wanting to um, prevent their own children from being exposed and become ad- addicted. And what would you, and you've got, you're raising, you've got four kids. Yeah. You've got one married, one on a mission and two at home then. Is that right? That's one that just graduated. So I'll have one left at home. So you're yeah. one left at home mm-hmm. and you've, so you've had walked this road with a spouse, but you're also a parent now that has yeah. a lot of education in this space that I assume you're applying in your own family with your kids. What advice would you give to parents that want to do the very best they can? Yeah. In this space for kids. Well, we care about our kids and we don't want them to have to go through hard things for sure. So we try to limit those things. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to remember that we are walking alongside them in their journey. We are not controlling their journey. And we also are not, it's not about us and what we want for them and trying to shield them from the pain. Because what I see now is our youth are amazing. They are strong and they fight through the craziest stuff that they see every single day. And by doing that, if they don't know how to build 
their relationship with Heavenly Father, if they don't see the real stuff, the hard things in life to tell them, to make them, give them the opportunity to turn to Heavenly Father, then we're doing them a disservice because we're not showing them how to do that. And so as far as shielding them from pornography and things like that, it's like any other drug. If somebody came into your home and put um, heroin on the counter, you would remove it. You wouldn't leave it there and tell your children, don't touch it. But at the same time, they have to build that resistance themselves. And so I like to look at it as you have to still have an internal filter. Your brain, you have to teach your brain and talk to yourself to say, I'm choosing not to do that. And you have to tell yourself that probably every day, at least the youth do. And anybody in recovery does, has to do that. Our kids, we can put filters on things, uh, but ultimately it comes down to what I tell my kids is, again, you can do what you want. I can only limit so much. You are way smarter than me on, on your devices. You could get around anything that I put on there to block anything. So ultimately you have to have an internal filter. And why do you not want to, why don't you want to look at this? This is, this is what will happen if you keep doing it. This is the outcome. If you choose to look at pornography, uh, kind of paint the road for them. This is what happens next, the next, the next, the ne next, or even masturbation. If you're doing that and it becomes a habit and a pattern, then when you are with your spouse, you'll have a harder time connecting with her if you are only building a connection with yourself. And so just teaching them the real stuff and saying the hard words, that's sometimes... Like masturbation. Yeah, like saying it because it's a part of their lives. And, and if you talk about it, then they'll come to you. And my youngest has come to me just talking to me and asking me about different things because I'm open with him and he knows, not that I like saying it, but I do it anyway. I do it anyway. And it's the, it's the phone thing there. I still do certain things. They all, they plug their phone in on the counter at night, you know, but again, they could come get it if they wanted it for, you know, really, but it's about helping them build that and, uh, having good things on their phone. So it balances, you know, so there, I love a lot of that. I love the pot that taking him down the road of where this leads, if they continue to engage. Yeah. And I think that's helpful. I love the non-shaming environment. I've really tried to understand the word shame and shame said, I like Brene Brown's definition. Oh, yeah. um, tell us her definition. Oh, I, you know, I don't remember exactly that stuff. You'll have to say it, I'll but say it, I read all her books. Of, I love it. Sort of shame says I am bad versus I did something oh, bad. Right. Yep. And that to me is really powerful. So you've got to stay off the shame road. If you have a challenge with pornography, you've got to look in the mirror and see yourself first as a son or daughter of God who's loved. Right. And, and you've got Father. to separate your behavior from who you are. And mm -hmm. I think Satan's greatest tool is two ter really powerful things with pornography. The, the problem of pornography, but then the shame of the isolation and how you feel. And you don't talk to anybody, you don't reach out, and you just feel crappy. And then you're more likely to act out. So I've it's become clear to me, de-shaming, that doesn't mean de-sinning. No. no <laughs> or not it addressing it. Mm -hmm. So any more thoughts on... And I love the way... I think as parents, you want to create a feeling for your kids where you have, they know the rules of the home, but they also have space that if they mess up, they know they can talk to the parents. And I love your visual of walking alongside my kids. Yeah. Sort of like we're on the same journey together. I'm here. Yeah, I'm your parent and I have more experience, but think of me as walking alongside of you. So you'll talk to me in your mess ups. Yeah. And I'm going to look at that as a, a learning experience for both of us versus, you know, this, this, terrible experience and a kid then 
says, well, I can trust that parent and I can sort of keep talking to this parent about stuff that's going on in my life and creating this balance between this, these are the rules and this is the culture we've created in our family where I can talk to mom right. or dad. Right, for sure. And I think what happens is sometimes we take on our, our child says something to us and now our fear and our shame that our child's doing that is what takes over. And that's why it leads with the, I can't believe you're doing that. You need to stop doing that. And all the fighting back and forth where the child can't come to the parent and where they do feel so much shame. And if we as parents can, can step back and remember that our children are not ours, that really their journey will be different than ours. And that might include pornography. So how can we help them so that they can come to us and so that they don't feel shame? Because shame is, shame is why it becomes an addiction. That's why, because of that shame. I love that. And I love your reaction. Sometimes as parents, we make it about us and we hear some bad behavior in our kids' part. Yeah. You've let me down or how could you do this to me or, yeah. or, or even embarrassed if other people find out about our kids' behavior and how we'll be, we'll be seen as parents. And, and maybe those are not normal human emotions, but I love the way you identified those. And that may keep us from fully, you know, ministering and helping our kids if we make it about us as parents. That's very thoughtful. Right. Yeah. Um, talk about, so if you were advising me as a new priesthood leader, you've probably had, hun- I don't know, hundreds of visits, tens of tens of visits with priesthood leaders about this challenge in your marriage with your husband. You've probably had some really good experience with local leaders and some leaders that have said some things, have done some things that maybe out of the best interest that have not been helpful. Right. Yeah. So if I'm a new singles ward or married ward bishop, and Mm -hmm. I kind of want to make sure I'm doing the right things in this space. Give me some advice. Okay. Um, I'll talk about being, if you are a family ward bishop, because that's mainly my experience being a married person and going to a bishop. And, and I've been really blessed to have supportive bishops and, and ones that didn't, some didn't know what to do, but they, they were still there to hear me. Uh, but I am on some groups with a thousand other women that are in my same situation. And it, it seems as though the consensus is it's a 50, 50. So you can go to your Bishop and they, uh, they just want you to fix it for their spouse. They don't want the spouse to be in trouble. They give them a slap on the wrist, no matter how bad the infidelity is, no matter if there's been affairs or online stuff or prostitutes or whatever, um, they feel nervous to, cause harm to the person that caused all the harm, you know, your spouse and it, which then ends up causing harm to the wife. And the reason is, is because then it's showing her that what's happening to her doesn't matter. And, and it does matter. And they, they do need to be accountable for what they've done. And the, the person that is the victim in this case, the spouse, the wife, Uh, They do need to be heard and realize that that person needs help as well, that she's just been hit by a truck and then stabbed and then ran over again. And she has, she now has to heal on her own and her spouse can't heal her. So, so they need help. So a bishop, I would, I would say um, that they need to help with counseling and not marriage counseling, because this is not a marriage problem. It's not a communication problem. It's an addict problem. And so it needs to be the addict needs counseling for addiction. The spouse needs counseling for betrayal trauma so they can heal that way. Then as they heal that and addiction is out of the way, then you can work on the marriage and then you can do marriage counseling, but you can't. 
do any sort of marriage counseling with someone who's in active addiction because an addict is in addict mode a lot of the time. They're they're not thinking clearly and they're manipulative and deceitful and abusive and all sorts of things. And so you're going to try to fix that as a spouse going, okay, I'm going to marriage counseling. And then he's still not getting fixed because he has an addiction. That's we could, that's really powerful. Yeah. Um, so you're in a group with roughly a thousand, are they women? Uh-huh. Yep, so it's an this all is, women's. this is an all women's group that mm-hmm. have a spouse or former spouse that has a pornography addiction. Right. That's a great community to have, I'll it, bet. Yeah, it Just is. Just to have community on how you navigate this. I'm glad that group exists. <laughs> right. It's nice to be able to see what people are doing to heal. You'll see the people who aren't, that spiral in victim and and they never get out and they want their spouse to fix it all and it just doesn't work that way but you see the ones who are doing the work who are uh, healing and those are the ones you you notice at least if you want healing you notice those and then you pattern what they're doing and and then you find it yourself and then you said just so i understand about maybe half of the bishops mm-hmm. do put responsibility back on the wife to fix this situation they do yeah and i don't know if there's a term for that but it's and that would just sort of be re-traumatizing, I think, exactly is where that. you're traumatized. Mm-hmm. And then the priesthood leader, maybe his under uh, goal is to keep the family together and keep the marriage together. Yeah. And he's thinking the best way I can do this is have... Her forgive and forget. Her forgive and forget, which is probably re-traumatizing. And it's stuffing down trauma that's already happened. And so then you're just not dealing with it. And I understand where they're coming from. So they're doing the best they can with trying to keep a family together. But what is not understood by a lot of them at this point is that addiction is abusive because of the lies, the manipulation, the deceit. I mean, the name calling, the laughing in your face. Addicts are not great. They're great when they're not in addict mode. That's why you stay because you love them so much. And how can this person be now this person? But it's abusive and you don't really realize what kind of abuse you're in until you're out of it. And then you realize how uh, they just, just the, the way they talk to you in a way that's so manipulated. It's narcissistic, really, a lot of it is. And so those personalities are there. So when a bishop tries to keep a family together, they're keeping that spouse and those children in abuse. That's very helpful. And so there's sort of two things. One is putting it back on your shoulders and one is not having the spouse with the addiction fully addressed. Yeah. And, and the spouse really needs Can a bishop. bishop be a marriage counselor or should that be something that's given to professionals? Well, if they haven't had any marriage counseling training, then they're going off their own view, obviously with the spirit too, but you still only know what you know. And then of course the spirit can testify truth to you, but not if you don't necessarily have any background with it. And so, uh, love and I'll be there for you. And all of that is perfect for a Bishop, but to actually counsel them if they don't have any background is, is not good because they can do damaging things and say things that aren't actually true. Like this isn't an addiction. You know, he said he'll stop. So you need to believe him, things like that. Or you need to be a better communicator to this, to the wife saying that you just need to do this more, or you need to have sex with them more. And then he won't do that. But I can promise you, you can have sex Ouch. with them every <laughs> single day and it doesn't matter. They'll still act out the next day. So it has nothing to do with that. And then that's putting the agency of the addict on the spouse. If you do this, they won't do that. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you look like. If you're, you have depression, if you have anxiety, if you 
even if you're mean to your addict spouse, it doesn't matter what you're doing. They're still responsible, responsible for their own personal agency and what they choose. You are really strong (laughs) and very (laughs) articulate and have walked a very difficult road that has given you a lot of insights and gifts. I'm so glad we're doing this podcast and I hope thousands listen to it. Talk because I'm learning a lot. Tell me about if I'm what I should, if I'm a married ward bishop, is that the right term? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I want to say the right thing to the spouse. Let's say he's still, he's male, Mm -hmm. um, but it could be the other way around as you've shared. What's, what should I be talking to the husband about? And should I be talking to the husband in front of the spouse Mm -hmm. so that the spouse is hearing the same things? Or should I be talking to the husband alone or should someone to give me, give advice for bishops? Okay. Yeah. I think, I think talking together is always good because the wife, let's just say the addict is the husband. Okay. Uh, The wife has insight into the lies and the manipulation. And so if the husband is going in and telling the bishop, whatever, the wife will actually verify if that's true or not. So they can tell whatever story they want. And sometimes they do. Sometimes they're open and honest. If they really want recovery, they'll, they'll tell the honest truth. But if they don't, then they're going to hide as much as possible. And they will try to, you know, put blame on her in some way. So talking together is great. And basically calling the husband, um, to own his stuff, really just, this is your stuff. You've got to fix this. It does not matter what she's doing or not doing. This is about you and you need to fix this. And I'm not going to advise her to stay with you if you don't choose to fix it. I'm not going to cause her more harm than she's than she's already been put through because of your addiction. So if you want to make this work, this is how you do it. Help with the resources, give them the 12 step program information, counseling information. A lot of people, it's hard to afford counseling. For me, it's almost like it became a second job type of a thing. It's, it's a lot, but you're saving your life. It's one of those things that you may need to just go in debt for that because if not, you, you die. So, but, but bishops can help. And, and even though LDS services is awesome. That. Yes. I love that what you just said, by the way. And I, and now I understand why it's so important to say that in front of the spouse. Yeah. Because she, I think he needs to know that he's being told that by the bishop with his wife there. That's right. Because everything you just told did not require the wife to do anything. No. Um, it didn't put it back on her back to somehow solve this. It's you, the way you worded that was squarely on the, the male addicted spouse to solve this. And I love what you said, even it verbally saying in giving her permission in this marriage. Yeah. And I think that's, I think a bishop should open that door. I don't think a bishop should say what you should or shouldn't do. No, I think it's okay to open doors Mm -hmm. and say, these are. And I'll walk, and so I think that's probably okay. For sure. The bishop I have right now, he's read my book, and he was telling me kind of what he does, and he says he will he will tell spouses or tell them, he, you know what, I don't think you guys should stay together. And they're shocked. But he's like, they're fighting, and it's abusive, and, you know, the person's not choosing recovery or for whatever reason. And he said, that's miserable. And unless they're going to do the work and fight for it, they're not going to make it anyway. It's probably good for him to hear that. Yeah, it I'd is. naturally be oh. nervous about sort of saying what the couple should do. I think I'd probably just lay down principles and for make sure. good decisions. For sure. And I think the in the case where that but couple But I think it could be in, a wake-up call that might be really would. helpful. Yeah, I appreciated that he was open to not trying to make a woman stay in an abusive situation um, by saying that. Like, sh- I'm not going to tell her to stay, things like that. Uh, but what he can do for the spouse, so he he talks to the addict and says, 
all the things that they, that addict needs to do, but then to be really available for that wife, because it is, it is PTSD because any trauma that you have, that you go through has that and it's emotional trauma. And so she will need you and she'll need blessings and she might not be able to have a calling and that's fine. That's fine. She's trying to survive at the moment. Survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk about the role of the temple. I did have, you know, I didn't have a, I'm back to the YSAs now, you know, and sometimes we jointly decide the temple would be helpful for them if I felt they were doing everything they could do. Right. And sometimes we both jointly decide that restricting the temple would be helpful for mm -hmm. them you, if they weren't doing everything or as a kind of a wake-up call. But I didn't sort of have a firm rule on temple attendance. Mm -hmm. um, and I, in hindsight, I, I wonder if I was too... Um, I didn't have them own up to the seriousness of pornography by allowing them to go to the temple. So I have some, I don't know if the words regret, unsettledness would be perhaps some feelings post-YSA of maybe not restricting the temple more. Right. And what are thoughts on that for us, Roxanne? Yeah. Well, first, just for your sake, you can't know what you don't know. And so that's what I had to tell myself as well when I was shaming my own self about what I didn't know and what I didn't do and how did I not see all this because I didn't know what I didn't know. But now that I do know, I can do better, right? So it's all of, it's just progression. We are never perfect. So temple attendance uh, for as far as if you have issues, well, nobody's perfect for one. So my experience is if you are on your road and doing all you can, then I'm sure it's still personal revelation, but uh, I would see no issue someone going to the temple as long as they're, they're striving and, and trying. Recovery and yeah. doing, mm -hmm. facing it and doing the hard things. Right. If they're not, and you keep seeing the same pattern over and over and the cycle just keeps repeating itself, then they're not, they're, they're keeping one foot in each door. So they're not truly choosing a recovery lifestyle. And that's why it keeps happening over and over. So if you jump onto the side of all recovery, which is honesty, accountability, knowledge, your meetings, everything that you need to stay sober, you will stay sober. But if you keep your foot in the other door and That's... you lie sometimes and you do this, I mean, even about silly things, not even just about pornography, but just anything, or you think you can do what you want when you want to, then you're not humble and submissive to God. And then you fall. So you see it really quick. If you're a bishop anyway, if the cycle keeps repeating itself and the same with a spouse, you can be aware of that watching your spouse to see if they're in true recovery, if they're walking that line and constantly bouncing back and forth then, you know, then it's different. And then they shouldn't really be at the temple. But for me, the temple saved my life. It was the place that I ran to feeling so out of sorts, so chaotic in my insides. Like I am going to die and rushing there, couldn't get there fast enough. And it's like the minute I walked through the door, it reminded me of when I was a child and walking home from school in a hundred degree heat and walking in and feeling the air condition hit you in the face. That's how the temple feels. If you, if you are going there and you're in trauma or chaos, you walk through that door and, okay, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this another day. And that's where I gained my insight and so much of my inspiration. And there was even a time when I, I wasn't going in the temple that day, but I had my workbooks that I had from counseling and I went and sat on the temple grounds. St. George was, Temple. Uh -huh, that yeah. beautiful white it's temple. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So I sat on the grass and... I thought, okay, I did some work. I was there for about an hour and I turned around and went home, walked in my house and the anxiety and chaos just shot through the roof. And I turned around and went back to the temple. And I went back quite a few times that same day because I could not survive without it. 
I'm really touched by that. I think of Ezekiel 47, and I think in that, you know, Ezekiel's trying to teach us the power of the temple, and he talks about water leaving the temple eastbound in the Judean wilderness, and everywhere that water touches, it turns to life, and the water gets deeper and deeper, and he sees the whole, he's, and I think the visual imagery, God trying to help us understand about the temple, and this is a lesson I heard from S. Michael Wilcox, is it heals and it brings life. He kept talking about those two words. Yeah. We think of ordinances, and that's part of the temple, and work for the people on the other side. But I think for us, it heals, and it brings life. And those are important things that you've needed. I have. And we've sure. all needed that. Mm-hmm. And I love the way you turn to the temple. I remember one night after long interviews, um, most of them pornography-related, maybe 10.30 at night or 10 o'clock, I just pulled up an empty chair and had a conversation with Heavenly Father like he Mm -hmm. was sitting there. And I said, Heavenly Father, did you know it would be so hard? And these were mostly men, sort of like, did you, you sort of miscalibrated here. You sort of, you know, you've got, you've got phone, you've got access and 24-7 access and you've got people wired this way. And, and I sort of, I sort of probably thought you've missed, you've, You've over, you didn't calibrate how hard this would be because so many people were working on it. And, and then he talked to me. He said, well, I didn't. And he said, what have I done then? Because this isn't a surprise. I knew this would be a challenge. And I didn't send my sons. I'm thinking still pretty male at this point. And I think in our ward, it's probably 80. Most of my interviews were men, maybe 90% and 10%. In hindsight, I wish I'd maybe talk to the Relief Society in a way that maybe more sisters would have opened up because they've got op- the few that did, and this is a tangent, they were just heroic. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing for a male YSA to open up to a male bishop. Yeah. But I'm thinking of a couple of the women that opened up, and it was just heroic. Yeah. And the courage it took to open up about mm-hmm. pornography f- for a female to a male. Right. And so I wish I'd done a better job of, of creating maybe talking to the Relief Society and said, if you, this is your challenge, you know, you can talk to me. And It's cool that they knew that they could talk to you and that you were able to be with them in that kind of a sacred experience and a sacred environment that you, they shared with you something that's real for them and hard. And then my job, yeah, I just wanted them to feel heroic. Anybody that mentioned sin-related, I wanted them to feel that that was really heroic. But then Heavenly Father kind of spoke back to me. He said, so what have I done? You know, he said, I've put, he said, what have I done to solve this? And one of the thoughts that came to mind that I believe was from God is just as Satan's flooded the earth with pornography, I've flooded the earth with temples. And I've thought about that a lot. And I think um, the power of the regular temple attendance for our youth as a preventative tool to give them the spiritual tools. It's not just a one-to-one relationship because they've got to have other tools like you've talked about. But, And then I have seen some YSAs significantly help by temple attendance. And I've and I've sort of netted out that if they're doing all that they can, and that may not be re- measured by if they're messing up or not, just that they're going to counseling and they're doing everything that we're asking them to do, even if they're still messing up a little bit, I thought the temple could... I found the temple really helpful if they were honest and accountable. And then I felt like sometimes the temple was helpful to not make that an option. And I think back to pride. I think it was a way to sometimes get someone's pride in line that they would recognize they really need to address this and it's not just going to go away if they get married. So I've thought a lot about that. And I continue to think a lot about 
the role of our temples to really help people with pornography or prevent it by giving them better spiritual strength. The other thing, and I want you to make, I want to make sure I'm just not reminiscing about why I say bishoping, because mm-hmm. <laughs> that can be boring for our listeners, because you have real expertise here. But I, the, the iceberg principle really helped me. Sometimes what we see above the iceberg of the bad behavior is sort of what we focus on. And I, I felt like after a while, the pornography, like you've said, was what I was seeing on the top of the iceberg. But if I was really going to be helpful as a YSA bishop, I had to really understand what was underneath the waterline, the bottom of the iceberg and what was going on there. And then when I understood that, and we sort of um, found other behaviors that address that, that were not pornography related. And this maybe was more important before it was an addiction. And we could easily kind of get other behaviors. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. And that is why it's not just about reading the scriptures and saying your prayers. Because when you realize that you have to get to the root of why someone's doing something that they're doing, then you realize the benefit of counseling. Because it's usually not anything that we think of why they're acting out here or doing this. It's just like anything. When we're upset about something, it's usually not the thing that we get mad all of a sudden about it's usually two weeks ago and just things kind of have festered. And so it's usually another reason that then it comes out later. It's the same. So addiction that is, you're seeing the attitude, you're seeing that they're acting out or whatever they're doing on the tip of the iceberg. But the underneath part, if we can look at that and they're willing to do the work to uncover those things, that's where the hard work is. So what happens with just reading scriptures and just saying your prayers or seeing your bishop, meeting your bit with your bishop every week on Sunday to keep yourself clean, that's just white knuckling it to the highest degree. So it will wave back in if you don't figure out where the wave's coming from. What's at the bottom of the iceberg in your experience for a lot of people? Uh, sometimes it's abuse, sometimes neglect. Sometimes their home was fine, but they weren't maybe heard in a way that they felt connected to their parents maybe, or, or just that they have a natural tendency to addiction in general. And they came across something at six years old or a neighbor showed them something. And then they, as they saw something later, it just kept feeding that. And so they just kept going with it. So there's not really necessarily a reason, but, uh, whatever it is, they are missing something from early on and we all are, but some are more prone to actually having addictions. About anxiety and loneliness, I sometimes thought it could, that was sometimes at the bottom of the iceberg, well, just a way to yeah. escape from the challenges of life. Mm-hmm. That's that's what they think but they maybe there's something it. lower than that. Right. So, so yeah, you're void of something or you're escaping from something and you end up doing something else, whether it's drugs or video gaming or pornography. Um but loneliness, it's kind of like goes back to what you said about the one couple or whatever that uh, got married. And because he wasn't lonely anymore, his addiction seemed to go away or his problems seemed to go away. But when he is lonely, seven years down the road, when things aren't as smooth as they are, does that addiction roll back in? Or did he actually do the work that he needed to to actually eliminate it from his life? So Uh, Yeah, there's loneliness, but it actually creates, that's the lie also from Satan is that you're lonely and you deserve this and it's okay. You can have this. And then you feel more lonely, more ashamed, more guilty. And everybody that I've talked to that struggles with addiction, they're right after they're finished doing whatever they're doing and acting out, they are just devastated and they are 
ashamed and embarrassed. And they're like, okay, I'm never going to do that. They start making packs with themselves and packs with God. I'm never going to do that again. But it's like, there's that book out there. I think something like throwing, uh, marbles at a battleship, like in a rowboat, you're in a rowboat and you're trying to throw these little marbles to hit the battleship and get it away from you. You're dealing with something huge. And so it's, it's more than just, I do this because I'm lonely. And if I'm not lonely, I won't, you've, you've got to still figure out why you think you're lonely. Talk about, um, this term betrayal trauma. Will you, and it's part of your book title. Will you mm-hmm. define that? I don't, I mean, I can sort of assume, but just talk about that right. as a survivor or as a victim. I don't know how you take that label on yourself. Okay. So as the spouse of an addict, when I first found it and I realized all of a sudden I had this anger and fear and, and distrust and everything that was going on inside of me, I realized I was suffering from betrayal trauma. I just didn't know at the time. So basically what it looks like is your world now feels crazy and you, everything that you see that has to do with pornography or infidelity, uh, causes you triggers where you panic or kind of have a breakdown. I had a really hard time even being out in public for a while because I would just see somebody and they could be dressed okay, but just something that I would be nervous or triggered about that would cause me to panic and have an anxiety attack because I guess that person might trigger my husband, right? But what I learned with addiction is even somebody wearing a turtleneck does because addiction, you make up, addicts make up the story in their mind. So it doesn't actually matter what someone's wearing. And a recovering addict can be in a space where people are not wearing very much at all and still know how to control their thoughts. So it's about learning control, but betrayal trauma is like, um, you have been manipulated and deceived and gaslighting is another term. If you're familiar with that term where they make you feel like you're the crazy one at times. Um, my husband would say stuff like, um, you know, your inspirations are off and, and you don't know what you're talking about. I'm sober and I'm clean. And if you get the help you need, if you get on medication, then I'll stay with you. Wow. And so then I'm thinking, okay, no, I get good inspiration. I, I, but you start feeling crazy. Like, is it me? Am I, is there something wrong with me? Am I the one that's crazy? Is this my fault? And that's, that's manipulation, but it's gaslighting. And so all those things play into betrayal trauma. And just as a person coming back from war will have a triggered response. It's the same idea. If I'm out in public and I see something or I hear something or, my spouse relapses and I, my body will go into a panic attack response, a trigger response. And it takes a long time. You're like shaking head to toe, like inside your soul is shaking. So your legs can even be moving, but you're not trying to, you just are. That's very helpful for me. Talk about a um, couple questions. Why, why write a book? We talked about this yeah. before and you had a great answer because some people say, well, you shouldn't talk about this. You sh- if you're divorced now, you should never talk about why you got divorced. You should just keep this to yourself. Why write a book? And I thought your answer before we recorded was awesome. Well, when I was in the middle of it, it, it was so painful. And I was, I was pleading with Heavenly Father so many times in my closet, always in my closet, just crying and so devastated I, I honestly really thought I was going to die. I, I really did. I could hardly even, I just felt like I was holding in my heart. It was just so fragile and so empty. And I was praying one day, just saying, 
this cannot be just for me. I, I mean, I am gaining a relationship with Heavenly Father that now I would never give up, ever. I, I would never change the scenarios that happened to me because of that relationship. But I just thought, this can't just be for me. I can't have gone through this just for me. S other people need to know that they are not alone, that they can make it through whatever the struggle is. It doesn't even have to be pornography, but that they can get to the other side if they, if they do the work. And me writing the book was, I never knew I was going to write a book, but I had my own rock bottom experience that I'm not going to share because it's the first chapter of the book and it's pretty powerful and awesome and crazy. But I, I was so chaotic that I did something unexpected and something that was out of character for me. And so what happened was a couple of days after that, I was at the gym on the treadmill and I was trying to process through how I got to this point and how I let myself uh, do something that I never would have done because of someone else, what they were doing or the way that that person responded to me. And so I was kind of thinking, what is my part in this? And, and I need to own my own stuff that even though I felt crazy because of him, I still did something on my own. So what is that in me that, that is wrong and I need to fix? And that's when I saw it. I saw the title, I saw the cover of the book wow. and the, the rock bottom experience that I did became the first chapter. And that first chapter just sped through my mind. And so I knew, and I said, uh, heavenly father, am I writing a book? And he's like, yes, I need you to write a book. I need people to know that they're not alone, that there is hope and healing. And you absolutely can recover from this both betrayal trauma side, like for me and even addicts absolutely can. There's opposition in all things. So you can, you can actually recover. Tell our listeners, and even though I mentioned at the beginning, the name of your book and where they can find it. Okay. The name is called Cutting Ties, and it's on Amazon. It's also on my website, which is CuttingTies.com. And you can even read the first chapter for free on that website. And then there's a purchase button to Amazon for it. Uh, I'm also on social media, so Facebook and Instagram. Facebook is R. Kennedy Cutting Ties, and Instagram is Cutting Ties underscore book. And both of those links are on the website. And we'll put those on our social media posts when we post okay. the podcast. I read this quote a lot, and it's maybe you've heard it when I've read it, but it's the wound. It's the it's the wounded healer quote, listeners. It's the one I read almost every podcast now. The wounded healer, and that's who you are, Roxanne. Wounded healer, a minister's service. That's you. Will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. And I just look at you and what you're doing, and I, you know, I teared up earlier, and I just recognize that you're the wounded healer, and you're strong and courageous, and you've used the atonement of Jesus Christ to heal you, but you're wounded. I don't, and I think there's beauty in that. This has been an incredibly wounding experience that I have no idea what it's really like to be on your road, but. I think because you're the healer and because you're strong and courageous, you felt impressed and you're close enough with God to talk about this and write about this. And and then I think as we visited before, you get all these messages from people that you're giving hope to and they can say, I can do what Roxanne did. Yeah. Um, and I've got an example and I may not have a spouse with this kind of addiction, but I may be in the same general area and this gives me hope. And so it's one of the reasons I love Elder Holland, because he talks about his own, mm -hmm. the broken vessel, and he's vulnerable and honest, and so we, we resonate with him. 
and and it takes great courage to be vulnerable and honest. So you could just not talk about this, but talk about how this has strengthened your own kids. Because as a mom, you have this responsibility, and I'm sure a lot of those prayers in the closet were for your kids. Yeah. And wondering how this was going to impact them. For sure. And talk about how this is experienced, why painful for your kids is taught them life lessons they couldn't have learned any other way and maybe are better off in some ways because of it. Yeah, I find that they are so much more open to truth. At a young age, their perspective is already larger, so they're not just viewing with such a small, narrow frame and so that they understand the journey already. But we've had so many amazing experiences with with Heavenly Father and with their testimonies. And one in particular was that Uh, It was my husband at the time was uh, in a rehab center for pornography. It was a 90 day treatment center and we were praying for him. And there was some things that were going to happen that weren't going to be great, let's just say. And so my kids, uh, I felt impressed to, it was right around pioneer day stuff. And I felt impressed to do a devotional of sorts with them using, I had just watched a uh, come, come ye saints video with the depiction of, of the pioneers and everything that they did and them leaving their wagons in the snow and, and that. And, um, so we talked and I talked to them about Rocky Ridge and I talked to them about those pioneers were tired. They were sick. Their men were sick. And I said to them, do we leave our person in the snow to die or do we pick him up and carry him up Rocky Ridge? And they yelled out, we carry him. And I said, we we do. We carry him until he no longer will let us or until God tells us to let him go. At the same time, we were fasting and praying for a certain outcome with him uh, while he was in the rehab center. And I felt also I needed to share with them that their prayers and their fasting is being heard, that everything they're doing is written in the books of angels or however you want to put that. But that doesn't mean that the end result or that their dad will choose to take the miracles that are being offered to him. And if he doesn't, that still doesn't mean anything about their prayers, that they can still use this to, their prayers are actually for them. They're saying them for him, but he has agency. So therefore their, those prayers are for themselves and that it will benefit them and they're building their relationship with heavenly father. And that's really what it's about. So that when somebody doesn't do what we want, or doesn't take the obvious miracles that are being offered to them, we still know Heavenly Father is there, and we can see him there. He didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted, but he offered the miracles to that person. They just happened to choose not to take them. So with those kinds of things with my kids, I've done that all along, kind of try to show them the path and outcomes, and we just don't get what we want all the time. But they have built their relationship with Heavenly Father, and it gets stronger all the time. It's really good. Yeah, I'm just touched by all of that. I'm I'm still on Rocky Ridge with you, and if I remember what you said, we carry people until we can't carry them anymore, or for God tells us it's time to stop carrying them. Yeah. And so I love that you didn't say we carry everybody up to the top of Rocky Ridge. We can't, can't be everybody's savior. No. We have to, at some point, turn people over to the savior. Yeah or to our Heavenly Father, and know that we've done the best we can. 
Yeah. It's like walking alongside your wounded, but ultimately they have to walk. They have to do it. Do you, uh, I mean, this marriage went on about 20 years. Um, do you, do you think it went on too long? Sometimes for sure. (laughs) Um, Do you, I I, I assume you're very at peace that it's ended and you've done everything you can. Absolutely. That's my feeling after reading your book Mm -hmm. is you did everything do you, I mean, how do you navigate that now in hindsight? Do you think, well, I should have left earlier? Do you just try not to do that because it's unanswerable? Right. I, I went through all of those questions, and I think most of the people in my situation or others where they're they're debating whether they're sh- they should leave a marriage when you've got children involved and married 21 years or or whatever. At times, I think I it would have been awesome to be able to leave earlier, but I would have maybe fallen into the same scenario because I wouldn't have had enough knowledge and tools. And at that time, at 17 years in, when I found the majority of it, where I realized it was a problem, that's when we started 12 step stuff and counseling. That's when I was ready. So, so all the pre stuff that was happening was just getting me ready to be able to do it because yeah, you can say, you know, you you should have left. People will always want to say, some people will say I should have left earlier. Some people will say that I should have stayed. And so only you can know what you're supposed to do, but until you're actually ready to do the work that it's going to require, you will just let, let it, you'll just kind of be numb to it and keep pushing it aside going, Oh, well, maybe it's not a big deal. Or maybe I'm reading into this more. Maybe I should believe him. So you second guess yourself a lot more. But as I grew as a person, as I grew in my faith, as I learned to listen to promptings and, and didn't listen to promptings, I was guided to know that this was the time and I had a choice to make. And we're always faced with that. We have, we come to those two roads all the time where, which, which way are we going to do? Which way are we going to go? And at this point I was ready to go the road of recovering healing and it ended in divorce, but that's okay. And I've said this so many different times, but honestly, being broken is the best thing that ever happened to me. So being broken is the best thing that ever happened to me. Why? I think we know the answer, but yeah, say again. Right, because I'm completely different. I My view and my empathy and my perspective for people and the journey, letting learning to let go and let God handle my children and me being alongside of them, that all came from this. The You can't control anybody, knowing that God really will show up even though it's dark, and you're thinking, I'm pretty sure you're not going to show up, and he does because I walked it. But if I'd never walk it and I just stay afraid and stuck, then I would never know all these cool things that I know now. And so it's, it's progression, it's growth. I love that. And I love, there's no shame in that. And I love you said that. And I love that you're so much closer with God and have a better relationship and know the firsthand, the power of the atonement to heal. I also admire just the agency that I think you could be in a very different place. You mm-hmm. could be, and you have been angry, and I've learned to validate anger, but you could be bitter and angry and a victim, and you are, but you've chosen to heal, and you've chosen to say, yeah, I'm broken, so maybe I'm not completely healed, but you've taken everything that's happened to you, and you're using it now to bless other people's lives and also your own life, and I think it's a remarkable sign of of courage and strength, but turning towards Heavenly Father and the power of the atonement to heal. Yeah. And it's a remarkable journey. Yeah. it For me, it was one of those roads where I can turn towards God and give him everything I have 
the anger, the hatred, anything. And there was a lot of that. And I gave him it all. And he, he doesn't care. He is fine with it. I will tell him, and you did this. And I cannot believe you made me do this. But the difference was I chose to turn to him always with it. You're not there. And I don't think you are, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And that was a choice I made. I'm going to tell him all this stuff to him versus turning away. Cause if I turn away, then I'm not going to be getting the help that I need because I won't be available to hear it. So every, I just gave it to him and just did the whole path with him. So it wasn't pretty at times, made a lot of mistakes and. But you turned to him. I turned to him. with the anger. Yeah. And he's, he's never mad. And, and the thing is, is that usually all of that comes from, because I'm so overwhelmed, there's so much chaos that I can't hear him. So I think he's not there, but really it's about figuring out how to free up what's in my insides. If I'm anxious and crazy and all this stuff, then I need to uh, meditate or write it all out or talk it out with him so that it frees up my spirit so that then I'm like, oh yeah, you are there. Now I can hear you. Now I see you. But when I'm all bogged down with stuff, there's no room for me to even peer out my cloudy windows to see him. It's cool. I hope we don't um, do what some people did where they said you you stayed in the marriage too long or you should still be in the marriage where we take our limited facts. We don't have any standing. I have no standing to know what your right decision is. And I can't take my experience. So I hope that if, I hope you don't hear those comments. I think that's part of properly ministering as Latter-day Saints as we honor everybody's individual journey and no one wants a marriage to end up in divorce. But I think it's so, I think divorce is the right outcome and has been the right outcome in your situation. And and so we just put our arms around you and love you, and we don't mm-hmm. second-guess your decisions because we don't know. And yeah. we certainly don't want to add to your burden by projecting our opinions with limited facts on a situation. And that happens a lot, and I do tell women that a lot, that it comes from a good place when their family members tell them what they should or shouldn't be doing because they are loved by their family members. But our journey really is with God, and unless they've walked the road they really don't know what it feels like and they really don't know the impact that that gaslighting or manipulation has done to where we second guess ourselves. So we have to gain some of that back and trusting in our own selves to be able to get out. Otherwise we're getting out too early anyway. So it's just a matter of listening to your own self. And that's what I would tell women to just do your journey with God. You do it with him. You, you block out the noise from other people and, and you will do what's right for you when the time is right. I like that. And the longer I served, the more I became less prescriptive and more turned people to God, um, our heavenly parents, and felt that they knew best somebody's individual journey. And my job was not to sort of chart their journey, but lay down good principles and connect them to make very good decisions working with their heavenly parents who knew them better than I did. Maybe an exception was that when I gave a blessing, because that was times I felt Heavenly Father talking directly to somebody through the priesthood blessing, but that was the only time, but that was a different situation than just what you did and what you're teaching here. Well, Roxanne, we're kind of at the end of the podcast. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, just know that you are loved with whatever your journey is, whether you struggle with addiction or you are struggling with the trauma because of addiction or any anything else that you really are loved by Heavenly Father and that you can go to him with any of it and he's going to help you and you are definitely not alone. So thank you, Roxanne Kennedy, um, 
the author of Cutting Ties, Healing from Betrayal Traumas, a spouse of an addict. And I'm just honored to have you on the podcast today. And this, your voice and your perspective and your expertise and and your understanding of this issue that scales into other issues is so helpful for our listeners. So I'm so glad you had the courage to write a book and to talk about this on this podcast and other podcasts. And I hope you get invited to lots of church meetings where you're speaking to different groups of people because you have a real gift in this space. And I hope it's something that more and more doors open up for you to do this. And thanks, our listeners, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. And my producer reminds me, if you're listening to this podcast, please, if you can, on the app platform you're listening, give, rate, it, rate it and give us some of your thoughts. It's helpful for us and helpful to engage more people in the podcast. Thank you.